Amen. Amen. Great. Well, welcome to Emmaus Church. My name is Nathan. Glad you're here. Glad you braved the weather and um, joined us for worship today. Raise your hand if you like a Bible. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 54. We'll mostly be on the screen, but it's a tad long, and it'd be great to have a copy of the Bible in front of you. Also, if you're on the aisle and there's a basket near you, if you could pass that down, that'd be great. And if this is your first time here, your first time here in a while, you want to hand off your email or your contact information, you can fill out a card. Also, if you have a prayer request or any kind of comment to pass on, you can use the cards for that as well. All right. And then finally, um, in about 10 days, our Christmas Eve Eve gathering is December 23rd. And we've got these cards that were handed out, hopefully, as you came in. If you didn't get one, I hope you'll grab one. They're really not for you. I mean, you can take a picture of it or note the address, but I hope that you'll consider handing this off to a friend or a neighbor and inviting them to come to the Christmas Eve Eve gathering uh, with you. We, we have come into this kind of this tradition of gathering for Christmas the day before Christmas Eve, and it's, it's, frankly, it's just kind of functional. It's hard to get space. Um, that's available on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, and it's even harder to get folks who want to do all the work that it takes for us to transition a space on Christmas Eve. And so it actually works pretty well for us to meet at a, another church in town, Heritage Theater, and um, it's all set up. We gather there. My point is that I, I hope that this is a, a kind of a freer night of that week that you might in, in, in encourage somebody to come with you and, and join you for a, a Christmas celebration. Kick off the Christmas weekend, in other words, on the 23rd together. All right. Good, good. All right, well, our Advent teaching series is called Searching for Shalom. And um, shalom is a Hebrew word. It's uh, the Old Testament's written in the, this, this language Hebrew, the whole Old Testament's in, in Hebrew. And the word shalom is often translated into English uh, in, in, as peace. The word shalom appears in the Old Testament 236 times, so it's used often. And most of those times, like 175 of those times, it's translated peace. But it means a whole lot more than what we typically think of when we think of the word peace. It means far more than just the absence of war. It means far more than just a break in the violence. Shalom is complete wellness. When we talk about shalom... When Jewish folks greet one another or say goodbye to another with that word, I don't know what it's come to mean today, but initially it meant complete wellness. It, mean, it meant full and total wholeness. Shalom is where everything is right, where everything is as it should be. Nothing is broken anymore. Everything is back to the way it should be. Everything. Everything. So we begin to experience what shalom is like when we're comforted. And that's what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And we begin to get a taste of shalom when we allow ourselves to be truly known by God. That's what we preached about last week. And today I want to focus on the sense of shalom that comes in knowing, um, in, in experiencing redemption. Redemption. It's a word that I think we've almost completely lost in our culture. We understand it generally, I think, but I don't think we understand it very powerfully and I'm even more convinced that we don't understand it very personally. In order for us to be at peace, in order for things to be well, in order for things to be right as they were meant to be, there must be redemption. In other words, there must be some kind of resolution um, to the loss and the brokenness that we've experienced. 
There must be some sort of putting it back together to the pain and the disappointment that we've experienced. It's very difficult, in other words, to come to a place of peace when there's this unresolved junk or pain, um, even in the recent past or in the, in the extreme past. So I want to talk about redemption, but before we talk about redemption, I need to talk about shame. I need to talk a little bit about embarrassment. I need to talk about disappointment, that kind of disappointment that's of the especially personal flavor, you know, with a side of humiliation, the, the kind of disappointment or shame that, that causes that kind of that tightening up inside, that feeling. Why are we got to talk about that? Because you're never going to know shalom. You're never going to know true peace, deep, lasting, real peace, until the deepest parts of our lives, the parts of our life that are really broken, the parts of our life that, I mean, I'm talking about the, the hard stuff, is addressed, is, um, is redeemed, like the really personal stuff, stuff that causes us shame. So when we talk about redemption, we could talk about it on a real surface level, or we could just go to where it really counts, and we could talk about redemption of the stuff that's the hardest stuff. Uh, and, and I think that some of that stuff is characterized by a sense of shame. We're reading uh, Isaiah's prophecy because ultimately it looks, it looks forward to the coming of Christ at Christmas. So we're talking about Christmas, but we're talking about it from a, from a text and using scripture that's written 800 years before Jesus was born. So let's look together at Isaiah 54, and uh, it's on page 712 if you took the Bible from the ushers that were, were handed out. So as you turn to Isaiah 54, here's just a little bit of background. Isaiah is a Jewish prophet. He lived and ministered 800 years before Jesus. It was an incredibly turbulent time for the Jewish people. In fact, 10 out of the 12 Jewish tribes, so the Jews are the people of Israel. Israel is the name of a man. He was first named Jacob. He's got 12 kids. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. 10 of those 12 tribes are gone by this time. They've been decimated. The only two remaining tribes have been take, uh, defeated, conquered, and taken away, and they're living in refugee camps in a country called Babylon. They've been taken away from their land, which is critical to their faith. They've been taken away from their temple, which is critical to their faith. So uh, we're talking about this, dis this destruction and this defeat that was, a, a, it was deeply personal. It felt shameful to the people of Israel because part of what they believed this destruction was rooted to, in other words, the this is a consequence of, in part, their own rebellion against God. They knew that. To lesser or greater degrees, they understood that the reason they had been defeated was because they had not obeyed God. So there's hardship here, but it's also mixed with sadness and it's mixed with shame. And those are the kinds of things that I think are the, the kinds of hardships that are the, the most challenging for us, aren't they? It's not just when it's like a crystal clean sort of, oh, that was hard. You know, my tire went out or whatever. It's the, it's the hard stuff that's mixed with sadness and it's also mixed with shame. In other words, I had something to do with that. I've experienced something hard, and I had something to do with that. That's hard. So to be very sure, it was a low point in the history of the Jewish people. But late in Isaiah's ministry, late in the, in the prophecy of Isaiah, it's interesting. He shifts from talking about the past and the present, and he begins to look to the future, and he paints this really hopeful picture of the future, and it's a picture of redemption. So let's read this together. This is Isaiah 54. He starts like this. Sing barren woman. Now, the barren woman that Isaiah is talking about is not a specific person. He's talking about the people of Israel. Um, they, he's comparing them to a barren woman. And then about a thousand years later, the Christian church takes on this imagery as well, and they kind of put themselves in this narrative as well. So he says, 
Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song. Shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. So even though Isaiah and his people's lives have been mostly characterized by significant suffering, he is seeing a really promising vision for the future, a really hope-filled future. The desolate woman, he says, should burst into song, should be filled with joy because she will have more children than the woman who has a husband. So Isaiah paints this vivid picture of growth, this vivid picture of prosperity, and then he calls Israel to prepare but here's what's interesting. Hey, look, listen to how, how, how he says that they should prepare. Verse 2, enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. He's talking about the tents. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will, dis, will, will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Here's a question. Why do people need to hear a hopeful vision for the future? Why, why is he giving them this hopeful vision for the future? I met with several people just this week who desperately need a hopeful vision for the future. Why do they need a hopeful vision for the future? Maybe some of you need a hopeful vision for the future. And if you do, if that's the place that you're in, you're like, I need to see a, a hopeful picture of what's to come. If that's you, why do you need that? It's because now is hard, right? It's because now is troublesome. It's because your present is difficult. If you, if a prophet gives you a hopeful vision for the future, come on, somebody's here. If, the, if you get a hopeful vision for the future, it's because, some, it's because your present is difficult. It's because you potentially feel like a barren woman. You feel like you have crushed dreams. You feel like you have unrealized hopes. Maybe when you look in the mirror, all that you see is stuff that's not working well. Right? So you need something more. You need someone to say, it's going to get better later. Isaiah's original audience needed a hopeful vision for the future because their present situation was really, really bad. You can get a sense of just how bad it was by reading what Isaiah says right after this, this sentence because he tells, them this, he tells them this beautiful and hopeful vision for the future. He tells them to start building bigger houses, expanding their tents because they're going to have more kids and then he says something that's really interesting in verse 4. He has to address them emotionally. It's almost like they're unable to accept this hopeful vision of the future because they're so emotionally broken. This is what he says next. He says, um, whoops, I said that. And then I said that. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. Look at the, look at the words that characterize Israel's present reality. It's characterized by fear. It's characterized by shame. It's characterized by disgrace and by humiliation. You know what's really interesting about those four words? that are pulled right out of that verse in Isaiah. They're all what they call in Hebrew, they're primitive roots. In other words, they're not complex emotions. 
They're not a blend of multiple, they're not a sophisticated feeling. They are basic, human, primitive. You understand, everybody understands these feelings. Every country, every culture, they are universally experienced. You know the feeling kind of surges that make you sick in your stomach. Every culture understands these because they're basic and primitive. This is the broken human experience. Fear, shame, disgrace, humiliation. It's so tragic. It's so profoundly sad that God could say, your future is full of joy. You're full. Your future is full. You should sing. You should get ready. But we get paralyzed in response to that. That we don't. What happens next is not they're like, yes, but they get paralyzed in response to that vision of the future. We hold back. We freeze. We remain silent. We don't get ready. Why? Because of fear and shame. That's why. Because of fear and shame. What if this happens? What if I extend, what if I build a bigger house in anticipation of this good thing that God's going to do, and it doesn't happen? So we do nothing out of fear or shame. We think, what about that thing that happened? What if that comes back to bite me? You know, what, I, I don't feel like I can move forward because of this thing that happened. So God says, your future is bright. Uh, get ready. In fact, you should just start singing now. And, and we hold back in fear and shame. We say nothing. And, but God sees our hearts. And here's God's response to our hearts. He says, don't be afraid. You will not be disgraced. You will forget your shame. Isn't that interesting? Did you notice that God doesn't say, he doesn't say, don't be ashamed. He doesn't say, try not to think about your shame. He said, why doesn't he say that? Because he knows they've done shameful things, right? He's not asking them to pretend. He's not asking them, like he knows their shameful things in the past that they have done. So he doesn't say, don't be ashamed. He says something profoundly different and even better. He says, you will forget your shame. You will forget your shame. Well, how in the world is that possible? Well, it's possible because of redemption. It's possible because of redemption. In the ancient word, world, there was a well-known, widely practiced cultural uh, custom of buying back something or someone that had been lost due to debt or to death. And the custom was called redemption. For instance, a man would fall into massive debt and he would lose his freedom. He would literally become a slave to the person from whom he'd borrowed the money. And there was no way out of that situation. No way out at all. Except if somebody else would redeem him, would pay to get him back, would buy him back. He could not do that by himself. It was completely beyond his own personal ability to do that. Somebody else had to redeem him. Or another example, a husband would die, leaving the wife in a position of extreme vulnerability. At that time, no rights as a woman, no resources as a woman, totally lost, totally vulnerable, unless she was redeemed by her husband's next of kin. She could not redeem herself. It was an impossibility. Another person simply and, and desperately was required in order to redeem her. So we hear redemption, and if we're familiar with uh, biblical language at all, we probably have some idea about what that word means spiritually. But outside of the church, when you hear redemption or when you hear, let's redeem this, what are people normally talking about? They're talking about coupons, right? 
That's about as close as we get to this. And, and, and when you redeem a coupon, it's not even very significant. It's like a couple dollars off. It's a help, right? It's a discount. Um, there's almost nothing close to the level of intensity of the ancient idea. So we really need to kind of try to recapture a bit of the ancient idea where everything you had, where all that you were was totally lost, totally lost unless one thing happened. You were redeemed. Someone else bought you back, right? Unless there was a redeemer. Now what's powerful about this is the severity of the reality of loss. Loss was absolute. Loss was guaranteed unless... Someone else stepped in, paid the price, and rescued back or redeemed the land or redeemed the woman or redeemed the years that had been lost or redeemed the shame, right? Because that happens too. When, re when redemption happened, the reality of the rescue was as certain as the reality of the loss. It was that certain. When people in our culture lose a business, lose a home, lose a family, the reality of that loss is apparent to a lot of people often. And we go, whoa, that was real. It's undeniable. The reality of redemption in the ancient culture was just as real and undeniable, right? It was just as significant. And when God is our redeemer, the redemption is so complete it's even emotional. Isaiah is able to say, you'll forget your shame. You'll forget your shame. Even shame will be uh, redeemed. Let's continue to read in Isaiah 54, back to verse 4. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. Why? For your maker is your husband. Right? Right? The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Who's your Redeemer? Uh, my cousin Louis. You know, he's going to he work the deal. He's going to buy my land back. Who's your Redeemer? The Lord of everything. He's called the God of all the earth. Who's your husband? Your Maker. It's your husband. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. So what, what Isaiah is saying here is that the reason you don't need to be stuck, Israel, or the reason you don't need to be stuck, right, us, in fear and in shame is because of the possibility of redemption and the reason that we can be so confident that nothing is too far gone to be redeemed is because our Redeemer is God himself. So there are no limits here, right? There's nothing that's impossible. Nothing is too far gone. I wonder if we can even begin to grasp the, the power of this statement. Your maker is your husband. Right? The, the, the Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He's called the God of all the earth. Friends, true shalom is possible because God himself is our Redeemer. Right? So what does this look like? We hardly understand redemption, so let me talk about it just a little bit more. Three brief ideas on what redemption looks like. First, um, when God redeems us, he is making, not creating. Okay? When God redeems us, he's making, 
not creating. This is an important distinction. When we blow it or when we experience life-changing tragedy, and we, when we realize our need for redemption, for something that's been lost, we need it to be redeemed, it can be easy to slip into thinking that God's work in our life is to do a do-over. We can slip into thinking what I really need is a do-over. I need to start over from scratch. We even hear people talk about that. It can feel like this whole week with my kids was lost. I just need a do-over for the week. It can feel like my whole year's profit for my business was lost. I just need a do-over for the year. It can feel like the first half of my life, somebody told me recently, was a loss. I need a do-over. I need to start over from scratch. Please know, please know that God doesn't start over from scratch. God doesn't do do-overs. He does something qualitatively different. It's called redemption. See, it's, it's different than that. He makes something beautiful out of what he has already created. Why does this matter? Because it means nothing is just, oh, forget it. Throw that away, start over. No, God doesn't do that. He doesn't throw that away. He does not throw that away because it's valuable to him, because you're valuable to him. He doesn't recreate. He does something that honors and values his original creation. It's called redemption. He remakes he does not create. He doesn't start over. He makes something beautiful with what he's already made. You, your life is of such value to him. It's of such worth to him that nothing is wasted. Now, you can decide to hold something back from God. You can decide to keep something from, for yourself. You have that choice. But ultimately, everything that you surrender to God can be redeemed, which means that nothing you surrender to God is wasted. This is good news. You might feel like only shame and humiliation about a certain scene in your life. You might feel only shame, fear, humiliation about a certain season in your life. You might feel like it was a complete waste. Nothing good can come of that. But if you surrender that to Jesus, he will take it. Even if it's just a pile of ashes on the floor, he'll look you in the eye and he's going to say, I can do something with that. Watch, I can do something with that. Surrender it to me. I can make something beautiful even out of ashes. Okay, friend, you don't need a do-over. You, you need redemption. I don't need a do-over. Even for my worst mistakes, I need redemption of them. All right, here's a second thought about redemption. It's important to see that God's redeeming is more than just God's fixing something after it happens. More than just God being the first responder to a broken situation. God is a far more conscientious parent than that. He's not just, oh, no, and then running in to fix something. God's redemption is part of a bigger plan of caring for you that started way before you got into trouble. The older Hebrew translations, the older ones, they translate the word ge'al, which is translated redeemer, but the older ones translate it guardian redeemer. And I love that because of the strength of the image of a guardian there's a profound sense of freedom and confidence that comes in believing that God is not only redeeming my fear and my shame, but he's guarding me. It's his protective parental love, his care for me that has always been protecting me from my destruction or from the destruction of my sin and from the destruction caused by sin of others. He's my guardian redeemer. One of the truly exciting things happening in our community right now is this growing group of families who are preparing to or are in the process of adopting kids. And it's been so in inspiring and enlightening 
for me to walk alongside some of these families and to see all the work and all the care and all the love and all the preparation that's being made before the rescue happens, before the, the, the kids who need a stable home and need healthy parents are brought into that situation. It started, in some cases, years before right, the placement of the child. It's been a beautiful sign to me of God's care for the hurting that starts way before the healing or the restoration or the redemption is actually realized. These adoptive parents, even in our community, are serving as extensions of God's arm as the guardian redeemer. I think it's beautiful. One early Christian writer named Cyril of Alexandria reflects on this, what Isaiah says, and he says, God will establish us as sons and daughters of the king. He will establish us as sons and daughters. He's the guardian redeemer. This point, the second point, he's not just fixing things. He's caring for me even before the urgent need is known. Okay? That's the, that is the depth and the conscientiousness and the wisdom and the fullness of what we talk about when we talk about God's redemption. It's not surprised. You're free. So you rebel and you make decisions that cause a lot of pain, and so do I. God's not surprised. And here comes the solution. It's in time. It's not late. Number one, nothing's wasted. You don't need a recreation. You need redemption. Number two, God's care for you has existed long before you even realized you needed it. And a third final thought about redemption is God's redemption. It brings perspective. It brings perspective. At least I hope that it does. Even if we see that God's promise, um, his, that he promises redemption of everything, of all that was lost, of all that was grieved, even if we can recognize that, and even if we can lift our hearts, and even if we can embrace at some level that the future is hopeful for us, we still often really struggle with the present reality of pain and brokenness, the loss itself or the shame itself. In other words, we can say, we can say I know God loves me. We can say, I know that God's going to redeem the lost years, but that still happened. And what do I do with that? How do I come to terms with that? I know, I believe in redemption. I believe that none of this will be lost. But can you, what do I do with that really painful, very real experience that I had? How do I come to terms with that? And it's a really big, a challenging question. Why do kids get cancer? It's a huge question. Why do young dads die? I don't know. It's a huge mystery. Why do all kinds of bad things happen to good people? It's a mystery. It's far too big to try to address now. But I think this passage from Isaiah helps with, by potentially offering uh, this insight in regard to perspective. The passage ends, verse 7 and 8, by saying this, For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. That's rough, but the potentially helpful insight is the difference between for a moment and everlasting. Did you catch that? Between momentary and eternal, pain from tragedy, uh, suffering from our sin, the hurt that we experience because of the general brokenness of the world, when it's all said and done, it lasts just a moment. Isaiah is addressing a specific situation in Israel's history that involved discipline, 
They had rebelled. God was disciplining them. Please hear this, that not all pain is the result of your being disciplined. Not all suffering. In fact, very little of it, I think, is because God is punishing you. Right? This is a unique situation, so we need to be careful with these verses so that we don't misunderstand and reinterpret what's happening to us. But what I want you to see is that the perspective that redemption brings to the understanding of this present time and this present challenge and this present difficulty and the length of the season of pain that we're called to endure. One early Christian writer says, the measure of God's kindness exceeds the measure of his discipline. Another says, the season of anger is short and brief in comparison with the measure of the boundless loving kindness given to us from God. So in the moment, our pain can feel like nearly suffocating. And the loss can feel like it's too big to ever be redeemed. How can you ever redeem this? The situation can feel like a total waste. Like, why did that happen? What was even a little bit of a point of that? It feels like a total waste. And we can feel like we're just going to be searching for shalom forever and never finding it, never realizing it. But it's in these situations we, just, we need to hear the word of the Lord. We need to let the word of the Lord speak to our souls, get past all of the uh, filters of our, of our logical, like this demanding logic mind and get to our hearts. So I just invite you to open your hearts as I, as I read this again. And, uh, and I invite you to hear this. Hear this speaking into your situation. Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song. Shout for joy, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent circles wide. Do not hold back, lengthen the cords, strengthen your stakes. Do not be afraid, you will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace, you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Amen. Just a final question to consider in silence as we just sit with this for a minute as Josh plays. Here's the question. What needs to be redeemed in order for you to be at peace? What needs to be redeemed in your life in order for you to begin to experience a sense of shalom? I invite you to sit with that question. Name something if you can and uh, enable that to become a prayer. What needs to be redeemed? Let's pray for the redemption of what feels broken and lost. Not that God would recreate, but he would make something beautiful out of those ashes.
at the care that he has for us that started a long, long time ago will continue unto completion. And there will be redemption of this, this thing. Perspective that though this is difficult and intense and wrong and painful, that it's a season of suffering that is brief, that God's loving kindness is everlasting and has no bounds. I pray, Lord, for grace so that as we enter into this final couple weeks of Advent, that our, our rehearsing of the story of your coming, that our telling of the story to our kids of your coming, this would, not, this would not be allowed to just stay in a book or um, a traditional memory, but that your coming into our life would be a present reality we could experience. That we would begin to see redemption of things that are broken on a level that um, brings intensity to the importance of your coming. May we long for redemption, God, as we long for peace and shalom. And may you establish wholeness again in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Josh. Well, um, one of the blessings of this season, and I hope that you believe that it is a blessing, is giving. It's more blessed to give than to receive, said Jesus. So he's either